Well, welcome to you all, and a very good morning to you. It's, uh, it's great to see so many uh, visitors here, especially who've come for this baptism. Uh, I'm going to just speak to you for about 20 minutes or so uh, on those verses that we just had read out from Luke chapter 14. So if you've still got a Bible around you, if you've picked one of those up, you'll, uh, you'll be helped if you turn to that page. And before we start, I'm going to just ask that the Lord will help us. Father, as we look at your word, the Bible, uh, help us to remember it is a living word. It is a powerful word. And your word contains many things that are hard, that are challenging, things that rebuke us and correct us. But we pray, Lord, that you would give us listening ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Help us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, the election is nearly with us. And there seems to be a lot hanging on the results of Thursday, doesn't there? Probably it feels more so than I think previous elections, certainly in my life. The respective party leaders are doing their best to persuade you to give them your vote. Now imagine one of the contenders saying something like this. A vote for me is going to mean personal hardship for you. Likely, you will experience a huge amount of loss in your life, and it may even cost you your life. Now, that's not a great manifesto, is it? Uh, if, you, if you're keen to gather a following to draw people to you, that is not a good way to go about doing so. That kind of speech is unlikely to win new friends and influence anyone positively, is it? Yet, on the face of it, if you look at those words we just had read to us, what Jesus is saying there in sentences 26 and 27, which we just had read, sounds pretty much the same as that. Listen, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It's amazing words, aren't they? But notice the context into which Jesus is say, saying these words. Pick up the little clues. Verse 25 tells us, just before he says this, that Jesus is speaking to a large crowd. I mean, there's people all over the place. A crowd that's evidently been following Jesus. They've seen the things going on in his ministry. The signs, the wonders, the healings, the great feedings of thousands of people. And so they've, they've become a kind of excited group, haven't they? from the whole country following Jesus, probably thousands and thousands of people. And rather than seeking to win votes or to expand his fan base, Jesus is here raising the bar, isn't he? So as to sift out, do you see? To sift out those who are seriously committed to following him to those who are just hangers-on. And so Jesus pulls no punches. But why would he do that? Why would Jesus do that? I mean, we all love to just have a big following, don't we? And you look at Twitter, people want thousands following them. Listen, in the early 1900s, it is rumoured uh, that the explorer Ernest Shackleton put an advertisement in various London newspapers to try to get men to come uh, and join him on his polar expedition. They say the advert read something like this. We'll pop it up on the screen. 
Men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, <laughs> honour and recognition in case of success. It's a great advert, isn't it? I really hope that's true, because it's a wonderful illustration. But Shackleton, do you see, also raised the bar when it came to recruiting people to follow him. Why? Well, it's simple, really, isn't it, once you see it in that context. Because the last thing you need when you embark on a dangerous expedition is volunteers who don't actually know what they've signed up for. Volunteers who are physically or mentally ill-equipped and unprepared for what inevitably lies ahead on that dangerous path. Volunteers like that are likely to be a liability to the whole endeavour, aren't they? Well, likewise, Jesus calls to himself only those who have truly considered what they are signing up for and have understood what it might cost. And it's our responsibility, you know, as, as Christians who, who, who go to tell people the good news about Jesus, to, to, to present that to them, to lay it out on the line like Jesus does. Now, Jesus' words might seem a little bit shocking to our ears, and I think they're meant to be, actually. I had a teenager in uh, the youth group I was working in in Liverpool who'd been raised by a single mum, a brilliant, godly lady, as it turns out, and the shocking impact of those words when he read those words from the Bible made him want to just walk away. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Sounds so strong, doesn't it? Of course, Jesus is certainly not telling us that we need to hate our mums. On the contrary. Or that we're supposed to hate any close relative for that matter. But what he is in fact saying here is that in comparison to him, if we're forced to choose mum, dad, brother, sister, even our very life, the winner in that choice must be Jesus. That's radical, isn't it? There's no hangers-on there. And in the first century, you know, in the, in the early sort of church, that was a real choice for many people. Trusting Jesus certainly divided families. There was a real danger. It might lead to martyrdom. You might lose your life, as many did. The same actually is still true today in, in, in countries like North Korea. But closer to home, actually, I heard a missionary working with Muslim women in London uh, and recently she recalled a story to me of a dramatic conversion of a lady that she had been witnessing to. And this lady was converted, was really excited. She put her trust in Jesus and she phoned her husband to break the news to him that she'd become a follower of Jesus. And he immediately replied to her, I divorce you. And according to Sharia law, just saying those words actually makes a divorce official. That woman had instantly lost everything in her life just moments after making the decision to follow Jesus. It's a serious thing, isn't it? Carrying a cross in verse 27 
was the clearest way that Jesus could express the idea of surrendering your very life to follow him. Yet Jesus plainly says, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot, cannot be my disciple. Now look, when you look um, at church attendance in this country, and you see how it has declined over the last sort of 20 years or so, it seems evident, doesn't it, that many of those who were calling themselves followers of Jesus, who were taking the name Christian, had a very different definition of what that means than what Jesus does here. Well, what follows, and I want you to look at it briefly with me now, is three pictures given by Jesus to the crowd which describe what genuine discipleship means. What is it going to really look like to follow Jesus? The first picture is a tower. Have a look at uh, sentence 28 there. Jesus says this, Look, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he's got enough money to complete it. For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees him will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build. He wasn't able to finish. Now, I love, I don't know how many of you who are fans of grand designs. It's been going on forever, hasn't it? It's a brilliant, brilliant show. And as the name suggests with the TV show Grand Designs, the building projects on that show are pretty ambitious. They are grand designs. And the show generally it follows the same format every time. It starts with an initial visit to the proposed site, and, and it might look like a complete disaster zone. Uh, and, uh, and then you get an outline of the, the visionary dreaming of what he's going to produce. And, of course, it's all a computer animation, and this magnificent sort of edifice is created in a virtual world. And then Kevin MacLeod comes in and expresses his concerns. He always does it, especially if it's ambitious. And he brings to bear his vast experience of years of following these kinds of building projects from start to finish. And maybe it's the magic of television, or maybe he's just that good. But Kevin is never really that far off the mark, is he? He tries later on in the show... Uh, very, very hard not to say, I told you so. But, but I mean, I would. I'd be running in and say, I told you this wasn't going to work. And the projects become overdue, and the, they, they go wildly over budget, and it's a bit of a disaster. Well, likewise, this man in Jesus' story, did you see the story there? He likes the idea, you've got this man, he likes the idea of a new tower. He's got his eye on a really nice tower. Perhaps it's a fortification a lookout tower to, to add to his property on his portfolio, whatever it is. And he's excited by the idea. And so without any further consideration, this bloke goes for the pickaxe. He, he hires a team of people and they start to excavate the hole to put the foundations in. But it's not long before he realises he hasn't got anything in the bank to pay for this. He's run out of fun, funds. And... All he has at the end of the day is a hole in the ground where he was hoping he would have this great big tower standing there. And Jesus says, everyone who sees it, 
As they walk past, you can imagine them, can't they? That's, that's the whole, Remember the bloke? The bloke that wanted to build, you know, he was t- talking down the pub about the tower he was going to build. That's the, that hole, that's his tower. Look, it's sort of inside out, isn't it? It goes, it just goes down like a well. He began to build and he couldn't finish. See, that's the picture that Jesus gives concerning the decision to follow him. Have you costed it up? It's a really important question to ask. Have you sat down and considered what you will lose and what you might lose if you really commit to him? It's important to do that. The danger of not doing so is that further down the line, when the costs start to escalate, you might feel you've got to abandon the whole thing. And, and that will be to the ridicule of everybody who sees you. They saw you starting out. They thought you were a bit mad then, and you've just confirmed it. Of course, I knew it'd never last. The question you need to answer is, can you afford it? Can you afford it? You shouldn't start out just on a whim. It seems like a good idea. No better reason than that. And you'd be surprised at how many people do, actually. They come to Jesus thinking about all the good things that he's going to give them in their life. They see all the wonderful stories of the good things Jesus did. They thought, if I follow him, I'll get all these really good things. And then when tough times come, persecutions and trials and difficulties in life, what happens? They just jack it in. Jesus didn't deliver how they expected Jesus to deliver. He's let down their expectations and they're not having it. And these end up being those people who say later in life, oh, yes, yes, I was a Christian. Uh, But it wasn't for me. The truth is, they never really understood what they were committing to, did they? Please don't make the same mistake. Well, the second picture Jesus gives is is a picture of a conflict going on. Have a look in uh, verse 31 there. Jesus continues... Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down? There's a lot of first sitting downs in this. Do you notice? Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000 men? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. So here you've got a king on the eve of war. You picture him? Evidently, there's been some kind of disagreement with a neighbouring kingdom, and so he's about to embark on battle with them. What's a sensible thing to do before you just jump on your horse and go galloping off uh, against the enemy? Well, it's to gather intelligence, isn't it? You want to find out what it is you're facing. This king needs to uncover the odds. And if the odds are not in his favour, which they are certainly not in this story, he is in fact outmanned two to one, he's got to consider the possible losses here. And he's got to resolve whether it would actually be better to, to negotiate peace and to do so while there's still a comfortable envelope of time there, while there's time to do so, while the king is far off. What's Jesus saying here? 
Well, just like this king in this story, each of us is also at war in principle with the ultimate king of kings, a greater king. The God who rules the cosmos. And each of us has two options that need to be weighed carefully. And and on the basis of that, a decision needs to be made. First way is we could go our own way. We could could stand against that king, couldn't we? I'm going to make my stand. Or we could take a second path, a second option, a wiser approach of seeking terms of peace with God. And incredibly, many, many people take that first option. They decide, I I will stand against the creator of the cosmos. They don't perhaps think it in those words, but that's the decision they make. It's amazing. They fancy their chances up against the God who made them and, and who actually sustains their very life. Perhaps the point is, They never actually sit down, sit down and think about what that decision means. They never gather the intelligence. They never really think it through. I suspect, though, that the reason most people don't want to take that second option, seeking terms of peace, is that it means surrendering to God. It means giving him his due. If you're going to surrender, you're putting yourself under that king, aren't you? God wants disciples, followers who are fully aligned with him. The giving up of everything that we just read there in verse 33, giving up everything means recognising God's got a claim on every single area of your and my life. And that is a hard decision to make, isn't it? Everything. Nothing's out of bounds. We cannot start a life of following Jesus without giving God access and rule over it all. All of it. So assess the cost. Sit down and think about the alternatives, says Jesus, and surrender it all to God. That's what Jesus requires of us if we're to be his disciples. Let's just finish with that last sentence there and those last two verses there where Jesus talks about salt. He adds this on to this little section, doesn't he? He says in sentence 34 there, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for soil nor for the manure pile it's thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, I'm not sure how salt can possibly lose its saltiness. Have you ever thought about that? How does salt lose its saltiness? People have lots of hypotheses. As far as I know, sodium chloride is a very stable compound. I have a brother-in-law who's a chemist. I'm sure he would confirm that. But maybe that misses the point. Jesus says, if, do you see? If salt loses its saltiness, think about that as a concept. If salt was to lose its saltiness, well, it becomes worthless. It's, It's completely worthless, isn't it? And that makes sense. Unsalty salt, I mean, you don't want that in your kitchen, do you? It's basically just very pale sand. That's all you've got there. No one wants a mouthful of sand. You're not going to put that in your food. You're not going to do anything useful with it. You chuck it out. 
It might see, now this salt might, might start out looking like salt. It might behave like salt. It might taste like salt. But, but time tells, doesn't it? And the same applies with following Jesus. Jesus uses salt quite a lot as an illustration of all that makes his disciples distinctive and different from the world around us. And we've got to keep that edge of saltiness as disciples of Jesus. My guess is actually this picture is, is, is very similar, if you know your Bibles, to the two problematic soils in the parable of the sower. Do you know that story? The farmer goes out and sows seed in his soils. And you've got these two soils that are sort of problematic. There's a shallow soil that's got rocks just below the surface. And then you've got a soil that's full of weeds. And in both of those cases, it looks like the seed is going to grow and become established. It really looks like it's starting out like the, like the real deal. But the sun comes up and withers it. All the weeds grow round it and choke it before it reaches fruition, before it really becomes what, it, what it's trying to be. And Jesus said that's a picture of someone who hears his word, comes to church, hears the gospel, hears the good news about Jesus, and they start out, they think it sounds so great, they start out deciding, I'm going to follow him. And then troubles, trials come. Or the pleasures of this world start to pull them away. In other words, reality hits, whatever shape that takes. And these people, they turn out to actually be empty. The tower they're building just remains a hole in the ground. And so we must guard ourselves. Watch that we don't lose our saltiness as we embark on following Jesus. Count the cost. Weigh it up. Watch yourself to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus is warning that our love then and our loyalty to him must be above all others. He must come absolutely first place. And that we need to keep that trust, to keep God in that position, even when the worst trials come. Even when everything is demanded of us. And only then, Jesus is not, he's not backing down, is he? Only then can you really be his disciples. Now that would be a, an outrageously demanding thing to ask of people. If Jesus was just an ordinary man like you and me, seeking some kind of a political following. To follow his ideals. But he is not. What makes Jesus worth following? What is it? What makes Jesus worth giving up everything? Well, Jesus summed it up neatly just a few chapters back in Luke chapter 9. He said this, listen. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very self? Richard, Ellie, Jack, Nathan, Josiah, remember this. One look at the cross and any sacrifice that you might make for Christ 
suddenly makes sense. It is there that your life is saved, you see. It was at the cross that Jesus showed his commitment to you. It was on the cross that Jesus paid fully for all of your sins and your failures. And it is because of the cross that you and I can have peace with the great king of kings, with God himself, that we can have the certainty of eternal life. And Jesus says that's worth giving up everything for, everything. Following Christ starts with a decision to do so, built on the foundation of his love that he's put into your heart. It's a high calling. And at times we will fail to live up to it. I don't want to be unrealistic here. But never forget, he's with you. Never forget that he who began a good work in you, and he has, he promises he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So keep salty and keep going. Follow him.